What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. Today, I'm going to go over the Blagi tweet, my reaction, play a little clip from him. Is he a Bitcoiner now or not? And cover some swap line stuff. And has it been a while, guys? I think the 10th was my last live stream. And then I went on vacation with the family. And boy, did we choose the wrong week to go on vacation. I should have known something was up because... The last little while before the end of Q3, sorry, the end of Q1 is very volatile, and as well as the end of Q3, which is when most of the crises happen is the end of Q3. So anyway, th this last week was extremely, extremely exciting. I did cover a lot of it on FedWatch. I do the FedWatch podcast with Bitcoin Magazine on Thursdays at 1230. And so we did cover all of the stuff about let me make sure I'm not muted. Okay, sorry. I had a sinking feeling. It's going to get me a few minutes to get back into the swing of things here on this live streaming. But yeah, on Thursday, we covered the Credit Suisse stuff. We covered the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank. These are the, you know, those two banks were the number two and three largest bank failures in American history. Credit Suisse is going to be up there, probably the largest. I don't know about like percent of GDP, there's probably been some larger failures in European history, but it's gigantic, globally, systemically important bank, right? A GSIP. That's a big, big deal. But anyway, just to update that, first, the Fed came out in a coordinated action with most major central banks and said that they were going to provide swap lines uh, for dollars. Now, I thought that the dollar was losing its world reserve currency status to the renminbi, to the ruble, you know, to some Zoltan Poznar, Bretton Woods 3 currency. So that's what I thought was happening, but at least that's what we're told by all these people. But when we see swap lines to save the system, it's not swap lines in renminbi or swap lines in yen or euro, it's swap lines in US dollars. The US dollar is still king and it will remain king until Bitcoin takes over. But even when Bitcoin takes over, that doesn't mean that the dollar has to fail because the dollar has changed many times in history, you know, from a silver standard to a bimetallic standard, to a gold standard, to a different gold standard, to a credit-based standard, which we have now, which is just backed by debt. And there's nothing to say that the dollar can't change again to being backed by Bitcoin or even backed by gold. It could, that could happen. And if the dollar becomes backed by gold, that shouldn't be a loss for anybody. It will set Bitcoin back many years, probably two decades, something like that. But it's not going to kill Bitcoin. And it would be good to have some fiscal restraint, you know, on the banking system and to have fiscal restraint on boom bust cycles that we have and credit creation and all of that. So a return to the gold standard would be a win. Of course, a Bitcoin standard will eventually happen short of a fatal bug coming into Bitcoin, which is improbable at this point. I mean, it was much more probable early on, of course, and they found that inflation bug. What was that back in 2018, was it? So there, there have been bugs in Bitcoin, but they're getting more and more improbable as time goes on, I would say every year probably drops by 50% that there's going to be some sort of fatal bug in Bitcoin. 
And so short of that, I think Bitcoin will eventually win. The only way that they can defeat Bitcoin in the near term is to adopt gold or, you know, to back the dollar by gold. But that will still be a U.S. dollar. So, you know, the U.S. dollar is not going away. Like, would you trust a Chinese yuan backed by gold? I don't know. I mean, you could, it wouldn't be convertible. <laughs> you know, they would just claim that it's backed by gold. And they would claim that they're not printing money or that they're not, you know, they have X amount of gold to back the currency, that it's unencumbered or at least allocated to backing the currency. But that doesn't mean it's true. It definitely won't be convertible. You know, that's also why like the CBDC things um, or like if you had a BRICS CBDC or something, it would be crazy because the Chinese government, the, the communists would be in charge of it. Do you think that the communists would let Brazil have any say or South Africa have any say at all? They might let Russia have some say because, you know, Russia has nukes on their border, but they, they won't be letting the other BRICS do this. Let's just get into the Balaji stuff. Sorry, I'm all over the place this morning, guys. There's so much happening. And I mean, I wanted to cover... I don't know, probably 15 different stories here to catch up on all the stuff that I missed, but that's impossible. You just have to start from now and go forward. Uh, so anyway, Bellagi is the big talk of the town right now. And let's switch over to this. So here is this tweet heard around Bitcoin. Some background on Bellagi. I mean, he's been around a long time. He's big into the VC space. He got heavy into Bitcoin um, and then parlayed that into becoming heavy into the shit coins. And at this point, he's known as a shitcoin promoter, an Ethereum promoter. And that has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today, because is he a Bitcoin maximalist now? So he has this bet that he took and it says, I'll take that bet. So the bet is I bet anyone one million dollars that the U.S. doesn't enter hyperinflation. Okay, so he says, he, I will send 1 million USD, that is a 40 to 1 odds, as one Bitcoin is worth 26K. The term is 90 days. All we need is a mutually agreed custodian who will still be there to settle this in the event of a digital dollar devaluation. If someone knows how to do this. All right, so that's the bet. Bitcoin has to hit a million dollars in 90 days. Supposedly, it's going to cost him $2 million to do this. I don't know exactly the ins and the outs, why it's going to cost him $2 million, but he has already put up the million. I saw George Gammon, who doesn't miss any opportunity to trash on Bitcoiners. He said, hey, why doesn't Balaji just take that million and buy Bitcoin with it? You know, If it hits a million, that's way, it'll be way better off. Obviously, George knows the reason because this is somewhat a promotion of Bitcoin and putting skin in the game in this way. I'm sure Balaji has plenty of Bitcoin and he's leveraged on his calls on Bitcoin. So there's no need maybe in that, that sense to do that. But also, uh, this is a promotion for Balaji. It's going to cost him $1 million or $2 million, whatever the total is going to be, and he is able to promote Bitcoin and promote whatever comes next for him. I saw Corey Clipson was making some speculation that he's going to launch a new website. 
So he launched Nakamoto.com, I believe, and promoted altcoins on it. And so this could be Balaji's next way of promoting himself and promoting his next website for a million dollars. I mean, that's a pretty cheap bet for Balaji if it gets his new thing off the ground. I mean, he was probably going to be interviewed by CNBC. You know, he's going to be interviewed by all these other people. He's going to put get himself out there. And this is just a million dollars to build his brand. Uh, that's probably a pretty good investment for Balaji. I mean, the whole idea also, this says that Bitcoin does not enter hyperinflation or sorry, the dollar does not enter hyperinflation. I mean, what exactly is hyperinflation? Um, there's a textbook definition. I think it's 50% a month, but I could be wrong on that. that that's a ballpark for a textbook for hyperinflation, 50% a month. And I don't think the dollar is anywhere near that. They're offering swap lines to central banks in dollars. If that doesn't tell you that the dollar, it, the need for dollars, the demand for dollars is off of the charts, I don't know what does. So the dollar definitely will not enter hyperinflation. Now, will Bitcoin hit a million dollars? I think that's more likely than the dollar going to hyperinflation. Bitcoin can hit a million quite easily. I saw another chart here on Twitter this morning um, where they took the log, you know, the log chart of Bitcoin in its history and then just made it go to a million. And it really didn't look all that crazy. It looked like a little vertical section at the end, but it was still within the general pattern of Bitcoin. So going to a million is not crazy. I was just responding to somebody on Telegram talking about, you know, if Bitcoin 10Xs in this move, Bitcoin would go to around a quarter of a million dollars. And as I was typing that, I was like, that's not really that much. Like, I thought we would be there, you know, back in 2021 or whatever. And so if it goes there now, I mean, it's not really that high. And then what is that? Another 4x on top of that to a million? Bitcoin can surprisingly move very quickly. It's all about the last Satoshi traded, right? It's not about, that's why market cap is kind of a worthless metric because it's all about the, the last unit sold. And then that price applied to the entire stock, which is crazy if you think about it. So like an altcoin can sell one trade at $1 per token, and it could be a wash trade to themselves. And they have a billion dollar circulating supply or billion circulating supply, boom, all of a sudden it has a billion dollar market cap off of one wash trade. So market cap is kind of a faulty metric. It does work for things that are heavily traded. At least it's more legitimate. Obviously the more liquidity you have, the more legitimate that it is because you can't sell everything at that market cap at that valuation. Right. And so it, it really doesn't make sense uh, to justify these altcoin valuations by this. But anyway, um, what I think this Balaji tweet is about is he and other scammers, because I also saw Hoskinson of Cordano and Ethereum fame, you know, Charles Hoskinson, he was one of the founders of Ethereum. Then he rolled that over into his own scam of Cardano. And now he's out there saying that Bitcoin needs algorithmic stablecoins on top. 
you know, like all these ordinal things and RGB and all, you know, all this uh, inscriptions and how Bitcoin has these layers. Now they're, they're saying, oh, Bitcoin needs an algorithmic stablecoin and that will help Bitcoin meet its true goal of becoming global reserve currency. Of course, that's ludicrous, but he is a scammer and he's starting to move in to Bitcoin. And I think Balaji, even though he was in Bitcoin originally, he is starting to see the writing on the wall too, that Bitcoin is how you leverage this thing. You have to go with the champ. I see them coming. I see the altcoiners coming. And I think the altcoin sector is kind of dead as a separate token outside of Bitcoin. But just think about the last big altcoin pump was, I don't know how many hundreds of billions. Was it 500 billion market cap? Oh God, I'm bringing in the market cap myself um like 500 billion market cap in these scams in the most recent altcoin cycle what if that was all like inscriptions you know all things built on bitcoin that's kind of what i'm starting to see as a future for the altcoin space because you know what they tried to do at the beginning was they tried to use blockchain and decentralization and dlt and all of these buzzwords and roll them into having some cover over their scams. So it's the same old scams, the same old money printing scams that have been going on for thousands of years, probably. But they put blockchain on it and it was somewhat legitimate and it was somewhat not going to get, you know, like if they didn't put blockchain on it, the SEC would have shut them down way earlier. But putting the blockchain tag on it gave them some protection. Well, now if they move to Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is the only digital currency, whatever you want to call it, digital cash coin, that is not a security. So they're going to move everything onto Bitcoin. And they think saying, not only are we using Bitcoin's blockchain and we have decentralization of Bitcoin, which is the best, but we also have stuff on top of Bitcoin. And so I think that's what they're going to be able to do in the next cycle. But the altcoin side of the house is going to deteriorate. Just think about how you think of PeerCoin right now. PeerCoin was a, I think it was proof of stake, right? It was a very early proof of stake coin. What are some other early coins? I mean, Litecoin's still kicking. I'm trying to think of some other very early ones. Aurora coin or something like this. What do you think of those now? Well, they're probably still around. There's probably one or two people running a node. You can trade them maybe somewhere, but they're virtually dead. Okay. And that's how most of the altcoin space will be in short order within one cycle. Probably four or five years from now, we'll look back at the altcoins that are not on Bitcoin and we'll see them as we see Peercoin today. But there will be a bunch of altcoins on top of Bitcoin. And we'll have to deal with that fight as we get there. But it also offers us an opportunity to say, hey, you're accepting these arguments. Yeah, Bitcoin has the best decentralization. It's the only blockchain. It's different than everything else, right? It's different than everything else. Hey, legislator. Hey, regulator. Bitcoin is different. It's not crypto. Crypto's not Bitcoin. Look, all these guys, they figured out that crypto's a scam and they're coming to Bitcoin. So it gives us an opportunity to make some rhetorical advances, at least. And I think that's. That's probably a good thing. So 
Anyway, let's look a little bit more into Balaji here. And he was recently on some podcast. I don't know which podcast this is. It's not Neil Jacobs podcast, but it's um, some Bitcoin podcast. But he goes into talking about Bitcoin maximalism. And I did share this with Telegram. So if you guys are on Telegram listening, hopefully you got a chance to listen to that before because my system audio doesn't go to Telegram. But um, I'm going to be pausing this throughout and making some commentary. But uh, is uh, Neil Jacobs here says, some are saying Balaji is a Bitcoin maximalist. He's not. Here's his take on Bitcoin maximalism. Okay, so let's listen. I've criticized it, but let me actually say certain things that, I mean, it's very complicated because maximalism has, that's the right way of putting this. Many of the things that they say are things where I agree with some or all of it, but it reminds me of, it's like somebody who's a progressive and they would agree. Okay, so he can't articulate these things. He's like, oh, it's kind of like this. I kind of agree with this. It's kind of like this, but it's like a progressive. So immediately he takes it political. And that kind of tells you where this whole conversation is going to go and where he wants to put Bitcoin in a political aspect. I saw a tweet from uh, Lynn Alden, a tweet kind of back and forth between Lynn Alden and Dimitri, what's his last name? Kostev, Kamenestev, or whatever. He has the Hidden Forces podcast, Kofinis. And he was saying that, you know, Bitcoiners are totally political and Bitcoin is a political movement. And Lynn Alden's like, no, it's not. Anybody can use Bitcoin. All it is is a decentralized network that you can update through burning of energy, but anybody can burn energy. There's nothing political at all about Bitcoin. The only thing that makes Bitcoin political is the viewer. Okay. Bitcoin is a part of nature. It is completely apolitical. It does not care about politics. Let's continue with this. Agree with many statements about how you need to have equity and you know, not discriminate against people and so on. But then they see people saying those things going and burning down black businesses. And that's like completely the opposite of what you actually seem to want ideologically, right? This is harming these people that you're claiming to help, right? So the words don't match the actions necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, if the words are in this case for greater freedom and so on, why are you arguing for like governments to crack down? Why are you arguing for? Okay. I I don't agree that there's some monolithic Bitcoiner. Really, the thing that defines a Bitcoiner is that they hold Bitcoin and they understand the monetary arguments of Bitcoin. Not that they hold any sort of political things. Like I've known close acquaintances within Bitcoin from early on, 2014, 15, that were communists in America. And they liked Bitcoin because they thought it was going to take down the capitalists, redistribute wealth. So it doesn't matter individuals' political persuasions at all. So uh, let me rewind a couple seconds because he goes into something else here. Necessarily, you know, if the words are in this case for greater freedom and so on, why are you arguing for like governments to crack down? Why are you arguing for willing buyer, willing seller to stop? Why are you trying to pathologize capitalism? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Okay. 
again, he he's pulling in here about Bitcoin maximalists applauding and celebrating government cracking down on scams. And I covered this on the show here, guys. I know it's been 10 days since I live streamed, but I covered this on the show. And it was one of the guys, one of you guys on Telegram that had this amazing analysis of this saying that people like Balaji here are saying that fraud is okay. You know, which is better force or fraud in libertarians, in libertarian circles, you know, everything is legitimate as long as there's no force or fraud. All capitalism, as Balaji says, all exchanges in the market are okay as long as there's no force or fraud. But the point is that there was fraud, period. It was all fraud. So Balaji's like, oh, they're Bitcoiners are saying, oh, they're so they're celebrating this. And and yet, no, I mean, who what are the teams? The teams are fraud and force. They're fighting each other right now. And so the Bitcoiners that aren't in this game of fraud or force, we're sitting back happy. Because obviously it's working out exactly as Bitcoiners have predicted. Balaji is trying to paint this out where Bitcoiners are being irrational or Bitcoiners are not following their premise of wanting freedom and all this stuff. No, we don't like fraudsters. And Balaji, you're a fraudster. All the shitcoiners are fraudsters. And they're getting it. They're getting what they deserve for the most part. I hate to see individuals that were victims of fraud get defrauded. I hate seeing those things happen. But seeing the, the system that's built on fraud that is 100% fraud, I don't care. I really don't care. Doesn't bother me at all. Like I said, if altcoins died, if the altcoin sector slowly deteriorated, deteriorated and bled out, I would be okay with that. <laughs> it has nothing to do with innovation because fraudsters innovate as well, right? Scams innovate. Should we celebrate innovation and in scams? Better ways to lie and defraud people. Is that what people that like freedom and free markets, what they would prefer? No, absolutely not. So anyway, let's continue. Right. And that's because I think it's gotten sort of maximalism gotten twisted in this ideological knot, which unfortunately is going to be very helpful. <laughs> and that's, that, that's the paradox. You're like, what? Why? That's an unusual. Oh, <laughs> I just tied you guys in knots because I falsely labeled things. <laughs> and now that's going to be helpful. Yeah, because he's a scammer. He's redefining the situation to now promote some solution. You know, it's a Hegelian thing. He's defining the problem that there is this irony built into Bitcoin maximalism and how Bitcoiners uh, behave, which isn't the case at all. <laughs> I, he built this problem and now he's going to give us the solution. Let's see what he says. Here's the thing. I know I'm digressing, but let me, I'll bring it, I'll bring it home. I'll bring it home. Okay. Yeah. And then I also want to hear what Bitcoin would need to do or what would need to happen or what will happen to make Bitcoin behave in the way that so many holders such as myself would like it to behave. Totally. In terms. <laughs> so the answer is one of the things I've learned over the last 10 years, 15 years is the value of irrationality. All the other people in web three basically are in, are in it for technology or finance or something like that scamming 
Just listen to what he just said there. All the people in Web3, why are they here? And are in it for technology or finance or something like that, right? No, they're here to print money and to scam people. That is what these people, I mean, there are some, okay, I will give it to them. There are some people that are unintentionally doing scams, running scams. Those are the people that don't know that their project is doomed to failure, but they'll push and push and push for years trying to promote themselves and promote this technology. But that doesn't make it any less illegitimate. You know, I've said this a lot, like just because it's unintentional, does that make the failure any less real? No, of course not. You failed. And if people are saying exactly the reason why you failed, these are securities. They're going to come after you. That blockchain doesn't work like that. You're not really decentralized. You're centralized. You can't have decentralization is not a nice thing to have. You can't launch with a pre-mine because it warps the incentives. X, Y, Z. For years, we detailed out exactly why these things wouldn't work, why they're fraudulent. Yet they continue to be pushed by Balaji and by others. So now, again, he built this Hegelian dialectic of Bitcoin maximalist means X. They're doing Y. That's a problem. So now I'm going to tell you why this is the case here or what's what's the solution to this and now he said web three sorry i'm recapping this right after you heard it but web three they're here for innovation and technology and finance no they're here to scam people dude maximalists are in it for fundamentally political slash moral slash social okay most people most people are owning bitcoin i don't think for freedom reasons i really don't i think most people are owning bitcoin because number go up the people that are here for freedom are they're going to get more and more in minority as bitcoin gets adopted because as price goes up demand goes up more people that didn't care about freedom eight years ago don't really care about finding bitcoin for freedom today most likely its number go up and that's fine because bitcoin aligns their incentives with the freedom incentive it's a, it's an incentive aligning machine that's what bitcoin is so if you really want to name all the reasons people were in Bitcoin, he would have to have a list of a hundred things. All right, let's continue. Slash ethical kind of things. Do I, I think there's a continuum where, as I said, some of the words I agree with, but a lot of the actions and behavior I don't. Still, I recognize the zeal and zeal really, really, really matters. Zeal matters because Zeal is the difference between selling when it's low and zeal is the difference between selling never. Zeal is the difference between talking to everybody about it all the time and making it your life and just having it be one component of an otherwise healthy life. Zeal means putting it at the top of your identity stack, putting it in your profile, having it be part of your existence. Like, you know, the top of your identity stack, that's really precious space. You know, what you identify yourself as, you know, you might live in Missouri, but you not, might not identify yourself as a Missourian. You might identify yourself as uh, as a bitcoiner or as a christian or as a republican or something that top identity thing is really important and that's something that maximus have and so what i think is actually going to no i don't think that bitcoin maximalists describe themselves that way i'm a bitcoin maximalist but i would say the first thing i describe myself as is a father then a husband then maybe a son definitely not bitcoin maximalist up there near the top and i don't think anybody would 
very, very few people in Bitcoin that you would think of as Bitcoin maximalists would just describe themselves at the top as a Bitcoin maximalist. I don't know where he's getting this from. Yes, we have zeal for Bitcoin because it aligns incentives and it makes sense. Just think about this. Like you lived in a society 1,000, 10,000 years ago. I'm, I'm trying to think of some natural process. Like, okay, so the you didn't understand lightning and thunder. And then all of a sudden you understood, oh, the water like evaporates. It goes into clouds. It builds up, you know, static, uh, whatever, electricity. And there's there's a discharge of this electricity. And, you know, this this water that was evaporated comes back, rains back down earth. You understand the water cycle and you understand the reason for lightning and thunder. It just makes sense to you and you want to tell people about it because it changes your whole life. It changes the way you see things. Maybe now your gods that you prayed to don't make sense anymore. So, yeah, that that's what it's like. Um, but at the same time, those people that, def, you know, found out the reason for lightning and thunder. They didn't think of themselves as lightning and thunder maximalists or God skeptics, maybe at the top of their stack. They were still the same old person. They were still a farmer or a herder or a father or whatever. No, th this isn't. I, I don't buy Balaji's explanation here for a second. But again, he's building this whole story. What happen is the political spectrum will rotate. I think, imagine adding yellow, a splash of yellow, so that red-blue becomes orange versus green. Okay? okay? And orange versus green rotates it. And so it's Bitcoin orange versus dollar. I thought that was really smart. <laughs> he even waited for, for, okay. Dollar green. And on the dollar green side are actually quite a few Republicans a lot of the, you know, security state people, military people, neocons, folks who basically side with, at the end of the day, they will choose the American flag and they'll choose the, the US government and so on. And the other side is Bitcoin orange. And here actually lots of Democrats will actually choose this side. And for example, like Jack Dorsey, like Glenn Greenwald, like a lot of the sub stackers, like a lot of the tech founders, Okay, so for guys on Telegram that can't hear this, um, he's building this political thing. So you've probably seen those quadrants of politics for a long time. You had left and right, authoritarian, libertarian, you know, and the, the four different quadrants. Well, that's what he's building out here is this idea that left and right can get slowly shifted to authoritarian versus libertarian. Interesting interesting idea but obviously i don't agree with this shift in the narrative the way i see things is that there is a populist rising in the world driven by this long-term credit bubble this credit bubble allowed for people to think they were smarter than they were you know so central planners thought they were smarter than they were it also allows for people in rich societies to become decadent and have all of these crazy ideologies because it doesn't affect their ability to eat, right? Like once your ideology affects your ability to eat, that's when it fails. A rich society has a built-in Achilles heel, and that is that people are rich and they can believe stupid stuff. Um, but anyway, the populism is what's rising and not a libertarian thing. Populism is mainly defined as like for the people versus the elites.
Okay, so the elites are seen as these Davos types, the Davos global Marxists. They are literally communist Marxists that, that are in Davos and in Brussels and in Washington and in Beijing for sure. But most most uh, you know national capitals are dominated by these global Marxist types, and they are the elites. Well, the people don't really like that anymore, and they're revolting. So the people versus the elites, that's populism. And populism takes different flavors around the world. U.S. populism tends to be isolationist, where, say, German populism tends to be more militaristic. You know, the different flavors of populism around the world. But populism is rising, and that is going to inform how things go from here. And if you guys have been listening to my content, you know, that's why I think the U.S. is going back towards more isolationism. It doesn't feel like it right now. The U.S. is becoming more isolationist and withdrawing, but we do have fewer troops around the world than any time since World War II. And we're slowly losing relevance. International institutions that the U.S. created, like the U.N., IMF, the WTO, the World Bank, all these things, they were created after World War II. They are losing their legitimacy. I just saw something about the world court put on an arrest warrant for Putin or something. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And half the world doesn't, I mean, all African leaders are meeting in Moscow right now to discuss Russia in Africa. Do you think the world cares about what the world court, that the world court says that there's an arrest warrant out for Putin? No. I mean, Germany said they will arrest him, but that's about it. I mean, if he came to the U.S., they would arrest him. Slowly but surely, the the international order that was dominated by these global Marxists is losing relevance. And so the U.S. will eventually withdraw. We will become more isolationist, non-interventionist, except maybe the Western Hemisphere. But anyway, that's, that's what I'm seeing here at, for the U.S. And so Balaji is trying to say, you know, there's going to be all of a sudden a flip from authoritarian uh, or from left right to authoritarian versus libertarian i just don't see that that's that's what's going to be now bitcoin in this situation um, bitcoin in this situation bitcoin is going to continue to be adopted but it's going to be adopted exactly for those reasons because you can't trust the global financial system when the global order breaks down you have to trust a neutral currency a neutral asset and Bitcoin is great for that. It's better than gold because it can, it's fixed supply and it can be settled anywhere around the world in 10 minutes. Where gold, you know, you have to store it at the Federal Reserve in New York or you have to store it somewhere and then you're just trading paper receipts that aren't the same thing. So this Bitcoin is superior to gold in all of this to be a currency for a deglobalizing world. But anyways, um, that's all I'm going to listen to, Balaji. Uh, let's get on with the show. Let's go to the next thing. This is from Lyle Pratt. He, he's a good follow, guys. I would recommend following him if you were not. He's quote tweeting Danielle DiMartino Booth. We did interview her for FedWatch. Uh, she says, lots of incoming questions. Swap lines are unrelated to QE and or inflation. There are financial system stabilizers to ensure dollar funding is not disrupted. Real world, world example, 
Silicon Valley Bank goes boom. A friend relayed his school, stopped accepting payments as transfer payment mechanism froze. And then Lyle Pratt says, a European bank has underwater treasuries. Fed accepts them at par and gives them dollars, which they either lend or hand out when deposits are redeemed. This swap line lets banks and foreign governments hold U.S. treasuries with zero downside or nominal risk, ensuring U.S. debt demand. So I thought that was a good breakdown. But where I wanted to take this was the idea that these bailouts, these swap lines are QE, that are, they are money printing. There's a couple nuances here that we, we should understand. The first thing is, I don't want to say we don't shouldn't care about individual cases of money printing, but we shouldn't really be concerned all that much with that because the idea is net. We're concerned about the net money printing. So when loans are repaid or loans are defaulted on, money is extinguished. When new loans are created, money is printed. But if you have like a $100 billion failure and then the federal, then the bank comes in and has $25 billion in swap lines, the net total is still negative, right? So that's the first thing I'll say about that. It's not inflationary. Also, I saw another tweet. I don't have it pulled up here by Matthew Pines. He was trying to, he was trying to explain what the discount window is for people. And that's where, you know, banks can come with their collateral and get cash for their collateral overnight. But there is a stigma involved there. That means that if the market knows that your bank went to the discount window, they're going to think you're in trouble and they're not going to lend to you. And maybe they'll recall some loans to you, you know, and like it has problem. There's stigma attached to going to the discount window. Go figure. There's a stigma to bailouts. So even if the Fed is temporarily having a net positive push on the amount of money in the system, one, it has to be repaid. Two, the contagion or the stigma that is spread throughout the system. So people are going to lend less in the private sector if people are getting bailed out. Like now, I just saw the credit default swaps for UBS are blowing out. Now, what about the people that UBS owes money to? You know, the contagion will spread because it's not a contagion on a balance sheet. These banks are solvent. I believe they're solvent. It's <laughs> a weird set statement to make because they're leveraged. But the problem is, and Credit Suisse, their CEO, he went out and he answered some questions. And one of somebody asked him who's to blame for this. And he listed all these reasons. Of course, none of them were management's fault. They're all like, oh, we were fine. And then the system macro environment shifted and and then our strategy didn't work. And then we we're the victims of a big PR or media blitz against us. And we couldn't recover. People were going off on him because he wasn't taking responsibility. But he's right. He's right. These banks, they are so dependent on the proper functioning of the, the system, propping up the value of their assets in good times. If their assets are, you know, at par and they're, they're solvent by a lot, they're very solvent. And then there's a real bad banking crisis. 
and the value of their assets drops by 25% and they go insolvent. They become insolvent because of the threat to the system. That's a credit collapse, guys. That's how it works. The problem is that there's no stopping it in a credit-based system. The only stop is the lender of last resort, and that is the Fed or the central banks to stop the contagion. That's why they are there. In a well-functioning market, the market would function properly and provide all the liquidity needs necessary. In a dysfunctioning market, the central bank has to fulfill that role of counterparty because no one else will. This is not inflationary recipe. This is a deflationary recipe, a horribly deflationary recipe. Now, why is Bitcoin pumping in this situation? You know, if the Bitcoin is supposed to be an inflation hedge, how and why is Bitcoin pumping in this? Well, my position has always been that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, but is also a deflation hedge. And as we have a run on banks, a run on counterparties, contagion, counterparty contagion spreading, it makes total sense to own things without counterparty risk. And Bitcoin is the most counterparty free asset, period, if you hold your own keys. And so in this situation, of course, Bitcoin is going to pump. And Bitcoin has a lot more pump ability than other things. So it's going to attract more relative capital than other things. You know, it, it might take, say it takes a billion dollars in gold to move it $50. A billion dollars into Bitcoin is going to move it 2x. I mean, it's going to move it by 20,000. So there's more pumpability in Bitcoin because it's such a nascent thing. And as it grows, then it becomes less volatile. So it's, it's a win-win-win for everybody to get involved with Bitcoin at this time. And that's why Bitcoin pumps. So anyway, that's guys, that's where, oh, I got one more thing. I saw this I saw this, this morning. Uh, it was a billion dollars USDT tether printed. Boom. In one transaction, it looks like. A billion dollars printed in one go. Pretty, pretty crazy. All right, guys. So that is going to do it. What I'm going to do now is go over to Telegram. Just keep the mic open here for a few minutes if you guys have anything to talk about. Um, but I'm going to end it here on YouTube. So thanks, guys, for joining me. Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets. Getting back into the swing of these live streams. As you can tell, I'm a little bit rusty. It's been 10 days. I took 10 days off of live streaming. So. But anyway, thanks for joining me. Check out the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. Make sure you subscribe at least to the free tier over there. And I appreciate you guys for joining. See you on the next one. Bye.